Most federal employees don't have to contact the Office of Special Counsel, luckily. It deals with bad treatment by supervisors, whistleblower retaliation, mistreated veterans. But when you need OSC, you can have a powerful ally. OSC has been led for six years by Henry Kerner. He'll be moving on soon. His term is up, and he's been nominated by President Biden to the Merit Systems Protection Board. For a review of his OSC tenure, Henry Kerner joins me now in studio. Always good to have you in, Henry. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. And I guess congratulations on a great tenure. And you are a one-year holdover at this point? Yes. My five-year term expired last year, and I'm in the one-year holdover, which will end on October 22nd. And by statute, that ends my service at OSC. And I've always had the sense you are just optimistic about federal process, about the ultimate efficacy of the federal employment system, even though you deal with where it goes wrong 100% of the time. Absolutely, Tom. We really try to help people, obviously, when they have issues in their workplace. I think it's incredibly important to support whistleblowers. Uh, We do do that, and I've been incredibly proud of the effort that we've put in for the last six years. And you recently had kind of a retrospective review with the OSC staff, and what were some of the fine points that you went over? We went to a conference called FDR. It takes place in Orlando. There were a number of OSC people there. And we did a little bit of a retrospective. It's called a discussion with the agency heads. They have various ones. And I did one where we went through the last six years and talked about what we've achieved. And what have you achieved? (laughs) Um, I think the biggest takeaway is that hopefully we have created an efficient and customer service-oriented agency that allows federal workers a safe place to go and file complaints and report wrongdoing in the federal government. Yeah, that's a good point because the operational efficiency of these types of adjudicatory bodies, let's say, can be a problem because backlogs come in Right. sometimes even where you're headed, the Merit Systems Protection Board, for a variety of reasons and not necessarily those of the board. There are buildups of backlogs You know, when there was no board for two years or Veterans Affairs, whatever, lots of agencies do adjudication of cases and case loads build in. And so justice delayed is sometimes justice never actually delivered. And so the efficacy of the organization is really important, isn't it? Absolutely. And as you say, sometimes backlogs build up for various reasons. In the MSPB's case, they didn't have a board at all for three years, I think. They had one board member even for the year, year and a half before then. So there's nothing they could do. That's just how it's going to be. Uh, sometimes there are lags, lags in, in terms of how cases are processed. I think a little bit in OSC's case dealt with these lags where we had some internal inefficiencies. So one of the very first things I did is I established an efficiency and effectiveness working group, and they made recommendations. We then folded some units into one, and we eliminated a lot of those lags. And one of the things I'm incredibly proud of is if someone files with us, they get a response usually within two days. Within two days, they have someone assigned, someone reaches out to them, down from about 18 days in the past. And that continues for the case because most cases remain with the same, usually, lawyer for the duration. All right. And talk about the nature of the types of cases, of all the cases that come through and get processed, roughly what is prohibited personnel practices versus whistleblower retaliation, which I guess is a subset of prohibited personnel practices, and then also the veterans' USERA law claims and so on. Right. So we have four big units. One is the Hatch Act. 
So the Hatch Act obviously uh, tries to ensure a depoliticized workforce. Our Hatch Act unit is incredibly effective in providing advisory opinions and letting the federal workforce know what's allowed. We're also available for questions, and we have a Hatch Act hotline where people can call. So that's Hatch Act. Then we have USERA that you just mentioned. We had a very prominent USERA case recently that was decided, I'm very proud of. We had a veteran who joined the war on terror, and he was a postal employee and then tried to get his job back, and the postal service wouldn't give him his job back. So we actually represented him, one at the AJ level, but then his case sat during the appeals process because, as we just said, there was no board members. However, he just recently won that case as well, and now the Postal Service has been ordered to take him back and give him back pay. We're speaking with Henry Kerner. He's the outgoing special counsel at the Office of Special Counsel, and that's an egregious case. Yes. And I read some of the MSPB cases, and recently someone at Homeland Security got 10 years of back pay. It took 10 years to adjudicate a case, and they got their job back. What stands out in your mind, looking back over the cases you've overseen, that Wow, how in the heck could this have gotten so far? Well, it's really unfortunate that case I just mentioned, there was interim relief ordered many years earlier. And so obviously, if that interim relief had been granted, the postal employee would have been reinstated. But the Postal Service didn't do it. And so the enforcement can be a challenge because obviously there are appellate rights. Now that we have a fully functioning board, we can get that adjudicated in a timely manner. But at the time, without a board, you can't do that, which once again speaks about how important it is to get, like you said, justice delayed as justice tonight, to make sure that there is a timeliness factor to these cases and resolving them. One of the great firings of business history was when Lee Iacocca was let go by Henry Ford II. This was, you have to go back a few years, but uh, it was famous. It was made all the headlines. And one of the things that Henry Ford II commented afterwards to people around him, and it was recorded, he said, sometimes you just don't like someone. You know, mm. He just didn't like Lee Iacocca. He could get away with that. That's not sufficient basis for firing in the federal setting or most corporate settings anymore for that matter. And do you find that most federal managers are pretty good at managing – I mean, given the – Let me put it this way. The number of cases that OSC has handled relative to the size of the federal bureaucracy, I think in some ways speaks well of the federal bureaucracy. So that's an interesting point. I think we do a lot of training. I think there's a lot of awareness. You know, we have a merit system. The merit system is supposed to evaluate people on the basis of merit, on the basis of qualifications and talents and skill and not on extraneous factors. We have seen an uptick in cases now that COVID is largely in the rearview mirror. Our cases are going back up. I think as people are returning to the office, even if it's in a hybrid way, there is a lot more opportunity to see misconduct, of course, also be retaliated against. So we have seen an uptick after a lull for about two to three years. And with the whistleblower end of things, that is always controversial. You know, one person's whistleblower is another person's disgruntled, terrible person. And why are you bringing all of this up? And we've seen in recent years whistleblowers whose case or whose cause is anathema to those of a certain political party. And it runs both ways, like cross swords. And do you ever wish that the politicians would kind of stay out of it and just look at the merits of what it is people are blowing the whistle about? Yes. I think protecting whistleblowers is a bipartisan undertaking, and it's important for the government to function. Obviously, when whistleblowers come forward, not everyone has a case. 
OSC closes a number of cases. We do an independent and very fair assessment. And so, so everyone has a chance to be heard. And that's really important. And I think there needs to be a recognition that it's not a political enterprise. It's outside of the political system. There's waste, fraud, and abuse in the government. And you have to encourage people to want to tell you about that. And the best way to encourage them is two ways. One, make sure that they're heard and make sure that you do something about it once they tell you. And the second way is make sure they're protected. Because if you retaliate against them and ruin their careers, they're not going to come forward. They're just not going to tell you anything. And so we all benefit when whistleblowers feel empowered to come forward and to report wrongdoing. And I want to comment, too, on the OSC press operation, because two of your people are sitting here in studio with us, listening in on here, and good to have them in. And we get lots of federal press releases. We look for them, because sometimes there's a nugget of real news. There are agencies, departments, that decided that every other day they're going to talk about how the administration and their secretary put the moon in the sky. And the next day, they order the stars. And the day after that, by golly, you know, human relations are improving worldwide because of this work. You know what I'm getting at. Yes. Your releases are pretty impressive. Uh, They're not every case comes out with a press release. But when they do, I find that they are instructive. You put out releases to the public on cases where you could learn something from this. It's not just a usual, well, I hate you, your desk is in the basement type of case. And so maybe comment on the public-facing outreach to the general audience from OSC, because I think a lot of agencies could learn from that. I appreciate you saying that. Our communications shop is led by our director, Zach. And Hi, Zach. Zach. Zach's here. right here. He's Zach waving. Kurz. And Zach does a terrific job. Obviously, we, we try to decide, you know, we try to make the press releases as, as user-friendly as we can. We also decide which things to highlight. But I do think there's an important function of teaching the federal workforce. So when we have a case, I just mentioned the Ursera case, where someone was clearly denied their rights, it's important to let people know because we want to avoid and, and prevent the next problem. And so by ed- this is educational. The Hatch Act unit is, is great, too. We have a, one of the Hatch Act members here as well. She of the Hatch Act unit – It's really important to let the federal workforce know when we have certain cases so they realize what is a violation, what isn't, and they can learn from that too. And like I said, it's a preventative. You can prevent a lot of problems by highlighting issues you've seen in the past. And Hatch Act, of course, goes back, I think, to the 1930s. And, you know, elections are elections, and people get pretty passionate about one side or the other. In my history of watching these things, I would say elections are getting to the point now where you can't have Thanksgiving Day tables. Politics are verboten across the country. It's getting to be like some kind of a South American thing with respect to people's political positions one side or the other. What has been the trend in Hatch Act in the six years you've seen? More cases and more egregious cases? I think the trend we've mostly seen is we've gotten a lot of complaints and a lot of awareness. And so because the Hatch Act has gotten some attention – a lot of attention, in fact, recently. People know about it. People use it. Sometimes people use it mistakenly. So, for example, just uh, during the election seasons, the Hatch Act advisory opinions shoot up. I think we did over 1,400 just two years ago. And even in non-election years, that's another thing. It used to be in the Hatch Act world, if you had an election year, everything would ratchet up, and then in the year or two after, it would get very quiet. That's really no longer the case. You have Hatch Act advisories, and you have Hatch Act issues bubbling up at all times. So it's now a you know, sort of all year, every year, whether it's an off year or an election year, it doesn't matter as much. 
And in terms of the cases, because you have all this awareness and because you have it in the forefront of a lot of people's minds, you really do need to do an an extra good job of educating people, of telling them what's allowed, what's not. You said the law is from 1939, which it is. Well, how do we apply it to Twitter? How do we apply it to, to today's social media, today's all the stuff that's happening today? And so it's really important to let people know how our unit views those kind of trans- potential. Yes, that's a good point, because at one time you could maybe, you know, have a baking sale for, you know, the Eisenhower administration mm-hmm. and then go to work and no one would know the difference and you were straightforward in doing your federal job. Nowadays, with all the social media jazz it all blends together and people can see what you're doing regardless. That is a complicating factor in all of this. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, don't forget, you have a phone on you and a lot of people work hybrid schedules. So they're at home. So now you're working, so you're on work time, but you're home. You also have your phone and your computer and and all that. So the, the blending of the official and the personal function has been dramatic. And so that's why it's so important for people to seek out advice, to check with their DAOs, to have ethics officials, and to really make sure that they stay on the right side of this law because Hatchet can have significant consequences. And, you and can lose a job over you, you a Hatch can, Act violation. Absolutely. So that's just something to be aware of, that it really can have significant consequences. So we want to make sure that we're as helpful to people and let them know how to abide by it. And getting back to OSC as just a small federal agency, your six years had something in the middle called the pandemic. Right. right. And how did that affect things and how is it getting back to normal for you from the small agency, small independent agency perspective? Yeah, not only are we small, we're also independent. So, you know, a lot of times you're kind of part of a greater uh, organism. We're independent, so we have to make our own decisions. And the most important thing we did is we shut down. We shut down the entire agency on March 16th of 2020. We're one of the first to make that decision. We were completely remote. Shut down the office, not the agency. Oh, sorry, sorry, yes. Shut down the office in terms of going to the office. So we went completely remote. That was a challenge for our IT because while we had some remote capabilities, it wasn't set up for it. We had computers that would melt because they weren't used to being used that much because we all, of course, had different computers at the office. And so we really had to have the IT people make sure that we were able to function, and we did. And, of course, one of my goals as the agency head was I need to keep my people alive. Right? I mean, this is a scary disease. I don't know what it's going to do. We made the decision to go remote, but now what? And so we were really scared. We also had a COVID task force for the federal workforce where we tried to intervene. We called them course corrections early on to, to save lives too because people were being pulled in to do COVID check-in who weren't trained to do that. They were landscapers and other people at other jobs. But they got pulled in to do that because, of course, everyone was panicked. But they didn't have the proper equipment, the protective equipment. So we would call in and make sure that people like that were protected and so they would have, you know, protect their health. So just all these these different factors that come in, and of course, it affects your ability to do your job in the first place because you no longer have in-person meetings. You're not used to your normal routine. You have to create a completely new routine. And I'm very proud of the work of my colleagues at OSC, both from the support staff, from the IT perspective. We had the equipment necessary, and then we had terrific outcomes. The COVID task force had over 800 cases that really saved lives. We also had a whole number of other uh, what we call favorable outcomes, you know, where people got a good corrective action. We had record numbers the last couple of years, up to 417 last year, which is the highest number ever in the agency's history. And that's while most of our employees were still working from home. You asked about how it's been since. We've tried to reintegrate to some extent. So we have a hybrid work environment. We're two days in the office, mandatory, and then 
the rest is uh, from home. The numbers are still very good. People are still very efficient, but we also now have more of the collegiality and sort of these serendipitous meetings where people can talk to each other and also get to know each other. Some people, some people have worked together for three, four years. They've never met. So that's now changing. Right. I was going to say, it sounds like you're not overly exercised about the great question of the day, back in the office or not back in the office. And there's all sorts of pull and push and tug of war going on among the federal unions and the White House and federal managers kind of seem caught in the middle here. Well, White House wants them back. A lot of members of Congress want them back. Right. The unions say, well, why? You know, because everything's working pretty well and so on. Sounds like you're not getting exercised over that. Two days, people are meeting each other. It works. Leave it alone. I, I mean, we made a decision. <laughs> so I'm not exercised because I made the decision and I feel good about it. I think some people, I'm sure, would prefer not to come in. And I get that. Some people moved far away. They had, they live far away. They have an hour and a half commutes. So I'm sympathetic to that. I think we have the right balance. I think either 2-3 or 3-2 is sort of at the center where this works. It gives people the flexibility to have some time at home that they've kind of got a little bit used to where they have some – it's at catch-up time too. When I'm in the office, I have meetings all day. I'm busy all day. I'm meeting people all day. On Thursday and Friday when I'm not in the office, I catch up. I read emails. I can read a document. I can think about it. So it actually works really well in terms of those two functions. I think it works for OSC. Obviously, I'm, I'm leaving next month, so we'll see what happens after my departure. But I hope we've set a pretty good marker where that will continue. Now, just presuming you are confirmed for the MSPB, the MSPB is different from the Office of Special Counsel, but there's some confluence there. You're in the same general area of looking at what happens to federal employees. What is your expectation for MSPB in terms of relations with OSC, and do you share case law from time to time, the two agencies, just because, again, you don't do the precisely same thing, right. but they seem pretty closely aligned. Yeah. So as, as you say, I was nominated. I appreciate President Biden nominating me. And thank you also to the Republican leadership, Leader McConnell specifically, for uh, having confidence in me. So I've been nominated. At this point, I, I'm just beginning my Senate confirmation process. So I I'm not going to comment on my on MSPB outside of my special counsel duties. Correct. From the special counsel's point of view, having a fully functioning MSPB is incredibly important because there's a couple of things we do that are essential. One is we get stays, formal stays from the MSPB, which means if an employee, we, we evaluate their case, they file with us, we think there's a lot of merit to it, they may have been retaliated against, we can get a formal stay from the MSPB that keeps them in their job. So they're not unemployed, they're not, obviously there's a great disparity in, in wealth and income and, and, and resources. And so we want to protect that as best we can. Now, we don't seek stay in every case. Obviously, we do do a very important check and culling of sort of the facts. So that's the first thing we do with MSPB. And the second thing, of course, is they adjudicate our cases. We can bring cases there. We bring hatch cases there. We can bring retaliation cases there for corrective action, for disciplinary action. And as the MSPB has come back, we have started to do that. So we have a more robust litigation function. We really appreciate having a robust and, and working and, and dedicated and diligent MSPB. Now, in Washington, there are probably a couple of dozen law firms that have a specialty practice in federal employment and so on. It seems like you could walk into a partnership at any one of them. Why, why go to the MSPB after six years of distinguished service at the Merit Systems Protection Board? What keeps you going here? <laughs> I've really enjoyed my, my stay at OSC. I've, I've appreciated the dedication to the mission from my colleagues. 
It's an incredibly positive place to work. I love going to work. I love seeing my colleagues. Obviously, we've had challenges, COVID first and foremost. We've had other ones. We had a 35-day government shutdown. Uh, our independence was a little bit it in may doubt. not be the last one yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. But uh, it's really important to, to for the function of LSC to, to be able to continue. So I've, I've loved the job. I think if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed by the Senate, I think the next step into the Merit Systems Protection Board is just a logical another step that keeps me in this community that I love. Henry Kerner is the outgoing special counsel at the Office of Special Counsel. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure. And we should also note, as we just said, he's a nominee to the Merit Systems Protection Board. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years I had compartmentalized a part of me and I had hidden things and I had not been my full self at work and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. 
It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first and so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through Two Star General. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back, those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence. Because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. 
when I started my career, of course, while I certainly had some skills, I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating, and, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence, because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve, because you've you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. 
um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, they see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will... Talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.